So I invite you now to open to John chapter 9. We're going to look this morning at verses 12 to 25. Picking up in the middle of a narrative here. Keep in mind this, that John 7, John 8, John 9, John 10 is only about a 7, 8, or perhaps 9-day period of time. Okay, as we're going through this. 7, 8, 9, 10. It's about a 7, just over a week period of time. Jesus just healed a blind man. Blind from birth. A beggar. Sitting outside of the gate of the temple. Jesus walked up to that man. That man did not call out to Jesus. Jesus approached the man. Jesus spit in the... In the dirt, he made mud. He wiped it in the man's eyes. He commanded the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man went, he washed in the pool of Siloam, and he received his sight, having never seen a thing in his life. He goes to his neighborhood rejoicing in what Jesus has done on his behalf. He has yet to see Jesus face to face. His neighbors marvel at this miracle, and that's where we pick it up. Verse 12, they, the neighbors, said to him, Where is he? Jesus, that is. He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son? Who, do you, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He's of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Father, we ask that you'll open our our eyes to grasp and understand that we are absolutely powerless, empty, dead, and depraved to ever be able to see who you are, to know you personally, unless you, by your grace and grace alone, open our eyes. We thank you for those in Christ here this morning that you have done just that for each one of us. For anyone here this morning whose eyes have not been opened, who do not know you, I pray that you'll do a divine work within them, and I pray that the believers in here would be edified and encouraged to be that much more thankful for the salvation that has made their way, its way, to their soul. By your grace alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what we're going to witness here in these verses this morning is the outworking of total depravity. The total depravity within the sinful hearts of all mankind who have not yet met the Savior. As you recall, in chapter 8, we witnessed the absolute failure of human responsibility. The responsibility to recognize the light of the world, that's Jesus Christ, the creator and the redeemer of the cosmos. And these were religious leaders who failed to recognize Christ is who he is, which reveals for us the absolute inability of the unconverted to recognize or to worship the one true God, otherwise identified in the Bible as natural men. 
Mark read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Because they're spiritually discerned. They are simply not able to understand. They may know things about God, but they cannot embrace him. They cannot know him personally. It is impossible because of their depravity. Now, it's very important that we understand, brothers and sisters, friends, family, before one is born again of the Spirit, where Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom, he cannot understand the things of God, he cannot understand God, period. The reason that one must be born again is because man is totally depraved, he is totally incapable of bringing anything good to a holy, righteous, pure God. Very important that we understand that. If you can understand that man is totally depraved, in and of himself, it's very easy to understand sovereign grace. And that's what's depicted here in John 9, sovereign grace. God grants sight to the spiritual blind, the spiritually blind. Man cannot produce them, produce anything good in and of himself. It's impossible. Now here in John 9, we learn again that the coming of the light, the coming of Jesus has a twofold effect. Number one, it brings to salvation to those, it brings salvation to those that are blind, for whom Christ provides sight to see, in other words, spiritual life. While at the same time, it depicts the looming judgment to those who will not come to the light, although they claim to see. And you'll see that revealed in verses 39 to 41, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. They, they despise the goodness of God. They hate Christ. They reject Christ, which is a result of their inability to understand. And the cause for their incapacity is inner corruption. And all of mankind, outside of the grace of God in Christ, are totally depraved. Key word, totally. Absolute depravity. So, since all of mankind is totally depraved, they have absolutely no ability whatsoever to come to Christ outside of the drawing, compelling, convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we thank God for our salvation, because we know we had nothing to do with it. Zero. We thank Christ, for it is unto Him we owe. Now, all men and women, before they're converted, are equally depraved. Equal ground. Even though depravity confirms itself in many, many different forms and is exercised in various ways, not everyone's an axe murderer, correct? Not everyone's a rapist. But whether it's a rapist or one doing life down at Donovan State Penitentiary, level three, level four, whatever the case, they are just as depraved as the little old lady up the street who is unconverted. They're both depraved. They're on equal ground. They're totally depraved. It's just that the depravity of the guy in prison has manifested itself in a more outward fashion than that of the little old lady who's never cussed or taken a toke or whatever. Because people will often ask this. <laughs> we know what God delivered you from, don't we? I love you, brother. <laughs> People will often ask this. If all men are equally depraved, then how is it that some lead less violent lives than others? I mean, after all, you're not going to compare me to Hitler, Stalin, or Nero, are you? You ever heard that? Now, in order to examine a question like that, it's necessary to understand that total depravity is not defined by what a man does. It's defined by what he or she is compared to a perfectly holy, righteous, separated creator. You see? God cannot look upon that kind of evil unless he does a work to change that nature. Your common garden variety pagan who's not a drunken, sexually immoral, thieving, cussing thug will oftentimes consider themselves to be good and respectable people, therefore acceptable to God, you see. It's easy for them of Romans 1 
or Romans 2 rather, to look at the lifestyles of those revealed in Romans 1 and say, praise God, we're not like that. And God says, I have news for you. You're just as bad. You actually judge what they do and what they don't do. You're just as guilty because you know the truth and ye remain unconverted. Then he goes on to chapter 3, which is religious Jews, and he said, by the way, you as well as Romans 2 and Romans 1 people, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. You're all depraved. The people who think they're good are that much more misinformed. They do not understand God's standard. To get to heaven, you must be perfectly what? Holy. Perfectly holy. These kind of people that think they're good enough, that think that they're acceptable to God, they're they're described in Scripture. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. So regardless of how respectable the life of the natural man, the unconverted man, may appear, his nature is desolate, and his heart is thoroughly defiled and under the shadow of an absolutely holy, righteous, pure God. Judged. They stand in judgment. And the very fact that a man or woman in this condition is unaware of their depravity is heart-rending proof as to the binding power of indwelling sin. Sin is deceiving. It's deceptive. It's blinding. Some people are simply more honest than others. Amen? They're more compassionate. They're more sober. But even so, the seeds of evil exist in every single human heart. Therefore, everyone is equally, totally depraved. But many people in their human pride do not see themselves as totally depraved, totally corrupt, totally vile, because they misinterpret the doctrine of total depravity often. And it can be misleading. Because total depravity suggests to some a moral condition of utter depravity. Meaning that a person is is as wicked as they possibly could be. But the doctrine of total depravity does not teach that man is as wicked outwardly as he possibly could be. But nevertheless, he's totally depraved. R.C. Sproul wrote about this and he says, and I quote, Adolf Hitler, who often serves as the paradigm of human evil, surely had some behavioral patterns that were not utterly base. Perhaps Hitler loved his mother and at times was even kind to her, a hypothesis that may not fit the likes of Nero. The reason? Nero had his mother murdered. Perhaps a better term for the doctrine of total depravity would be radical corruption. The word radical derives from the Latin radix, which means root. To say that mankind is radically corrupt is to say that sin penetrates to the root or core of our being. Totally corrupt. It is this depravity, the very sin nature of man, that must be radically transformed and man in this condition has no power to transform it. They have no power to turn it. They have no ability. They are impotent to make it any better whatsoever. They can stop murdering people. They may stop drinking. They can do that. That's easy. They can't change their nature. That's an impossibility. Only God can do such a work. Because such a a change as this takes supernatural power. Just like the power that this man received to have sight for which he had never had. And that is exactly what we see depicted in the man blind from birth who by Christ's power is, notice, made to see. That's what this whole chapter is an illustration of. 
If you just read the last verses of the chapter, you'll see that Jesus used that miraculous healing as an illustration to this truth that we're seeing here today. It's been rightly said of all men that if they were in the situation of Cain, Pharaoh, or Judas, and God did not restrain them, they would do the same. Just as Cain, you would kill your brother. Just as Pharaoh, you would be a God-hating monarch. And just as Judas, you would betray Jesus Christ if God did not have his restraining hand on the depraved sinner. Frightening. It's frightening what you and I are capable of outside of the grace of God and his hand on your life. Frightening. If you don't think so, examine your thought life, the worst thoughts you've ever thunk. (laughs) Okay? You and I are capable of those things outside of God's hand of restraint upon the sinner. That's grace. Praise God for his grace. You have no good in you. I have no good in me outside of the goodness of Almighty God granted to the sinner. If, the quote continues, if they were in the same circumstances as the fallen angels, they would be as devilish as they. End quote. If you're feeling jolted within this morning, that's the proof of the pride we all have within us. Because we're not comparing ourselves to a holy, righteous God. That's a problem for which Christ came to deliver us from. That's the hope. To deliver us from our moral, depraved condition. It is only the divine power and mercy of God that restrains unconverted sinners from the most shocking and grotesque of crimes. It is God who restrains both the internal as well as the external workings of all evil to best serve his outworking eternal purpose, ultimately for his glory. And all things will bring glory to God in the end. There's no one by nature that possesses the slightest measure of holiness. That's what we want to understand here. No one in and of themselves has any holiness within them to stand next to Christ. Because if anyone did, they could live this perfect life. If there was someone who was not totally depraved, they could live a life like Christ's life, get to he- like Christ did, get to heaven and say, move over. Because now there's what? There's two of us. But there's only one. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. God simply does not judge as man judges. It's easy for us to judge. Oh, he's not that bad. She's not that bad. Grandma ain't that bad. Grandma's just as corrupt as his brother sitting down in solitary here in the sight of God. Now, as you recall, Jesus referred to Capernaum. Capernaum was his home camp, his home base for ministry when he was here on earth. And Jesus referred to Capernaum as being more detestable to him than Sodom. Go read about what went on in Sodom. Open, flagrant, radical, raging, on fire, homosexuality. Matthew 11, Jesus said this, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, as I said, we're familiar, hopefully. If you're not familiar, you go read it. But we're familiar with the flagrant wickedness of Sodom in the face of God. But that which Capernaum was guilty of was plain apathy towards Christ. Okay? Apathy. If you're apathetic towards Christ... Put yourself in the place of those of Sodom. They never raised up against Jesus. There's no record of them attempting to stone him, to cast him off a cliff. They did that in his hometown in Nazareth. In other words, what he's saying is here, what he's saying here is you don't really expect to be exalted to heaven, do you, Capernaum? The main point is that in general, the population of Capernaum had remained unrepentant in spite of the glorious work of grace in and through Jesus Christ, his very home base ministry camp. Jesus continued, verse 25, Matthew 11, and at that time Jesus answered and he said this, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, you, Father, have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. God simply chooses what he reveals and who he reveals his truth to and what he conceals and who he conceals his truth to. God sovereign. Now, some people make the mistake of thinking that God's concealing and revealing truths are, are aimed at unbiased human beings who are in the middle of some mad search for God. They're all seeking God, and how dare him hide these things from those who are seeking him? The Pharisees represent people who knew God. And as you'll see at the end of this chapter, God revealed the truth to them who thought they could see. That's divine judgment. Remember, human responsibility failed back in chapter 8. Don't forget that. All humanity is responsible to repent and believe. But many people misinterpret this saying, you look at there's so many innocent, helpless people that are facing divine judgment. This isn't fair, but that's not the case. You know why? It's important that we remember that God is dealing with a race of sinners to whom he, owns, he owes what? Nothing. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. He owes no human being a thing. We owe him everything. Praise, worship, adoration, and a life of absolute submission to the one who spoke you into existence. Amen? He doesn't owe you a thing. So, for God to conceal these things is not an act of injustice, but rather of perfect justice. This is what we deserve. You don't want God to be just. If he were perfectly just, you wouldn't be saved if you're in Christ. That's mercy. We deserve justice. He's granted us grace and mercy. We rejoice in that. Now, it's certainly not an easy doctrine to grasp, amen? Trust me, it's not easy for me to grasp, but the Bible undeniably teaches this truth very clearly throughout Scripture. It's undeniable. It's clear. It's not easy because I'm not sovereign. God is sovereign. Therefore, I trust that everything will be put in its right place in the end, amen? Now, sadly, there is much resentment in men and women, and I'm talking mainly about Christians because non-Christians don't know any better than to reject such a divine truth. I mean, it would be very surprising if such a humbling doctrine as this weren't resisted as being offensive because it runs in opposition to human pride and self-sufficiency. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we're good enough. And this doctrine cuts against the grain of our thinking because we're so doggone prideful. This is not something that should cause us, brothers and sisters, to doubt the sovereign, perfect will of God whatsoever. This, is, this should be something we rejoice over. You were blind, now you see. And you did nothing. Therefore, we should rejoice. Amen? And you go proclaim that truth to other people. You don't know who he's going to hide it or reveal it to. You don't know. You just proclaim it. We proclaim it. We live it. We walk as new creatures in Christ and proclaim that truth. You leave the converting up to him. That's his job. You're not going to convert anyone. I went to a funeral, Hollywood Hills, Friday, to preach the gospel to a group of unbelievers. There was two believers that I know for sure that were believers because one of them invited me to come and preach. He said, bring the gospel. These are all unbelievers. I said, you got it. I'd love it. So the friend that I asked to drive with me, I said, you know what? We get to drive two and a half miles. We get to get stuck in traffic. We get to take six, seven hours to get there and back to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a group of people who are trapped and they have to hear it. Right? They had no choice. They couldn't talk back. Well, they could, but they didn't. 
They heard the authoritative gospel of Jesus Christ. I wipe my hands and I walk away. The rest, it's, up, it's God's. It's His gospel. The, 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 the number of days for that woman, the Bible says, were ordained before the, before the creation of the earth. Every man and woman's numbers are ordained. Her number of days was ordained. And I pointed to the casket and I said, that's a casket in there's a body. There's no life in it. The life is gone. That person has stepped into eternity. I'm not here to talk about them because there's a string of memories amongst all of you. I'm here to declare hope to you because if you don't have Christ, you're hopeless because of your condition. That's what gospel means. What? Good news. Because the bad news is really, really bad. Really bad. So it should be no surprise that this doctrine, you know, God choosing and, and hiding his truth, revealing his truth only to his elect, is widely denied by preachers, actually. They won't preach on it. Now, they can't argue their way out of it, but they won't preach on it. Professing Christians alike, they don't like it. And we see this attitude reflected in the life of the Pharisees. When the Lord Jesus affirmed in John 9, verse 39, he said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see, in other words, those who pretend that they see or think that they see, may be made blind. And then the Pharisees arrogantly reply, Oh, are we blind also? Carpenter from Nazareth. Arrogant pride. When Jesus declared in John 6 that human nature is in love with sin and overcome with enmity, which means hostility towards God, Jesus maintained this, that no one, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And what was the response to that? From that time, many of his disciples, meaning the many masses of people who considered themselves to be followers of Christ, went back and they walked with him no more. John 6, 65 and 66. So the rejection that this doctrine is met with demonstrates the density of darkness within the soul. In every effort to tone it down, to ignore it, as many ministers do, verifies the fact that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9, amen? And until God takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, man doesn't want to understand it. That's why the title of the message is the determined unbelief of human depravity. Men in their depraved condition are determined not to believe. There's only one thing that can override such wickedness. What is it? Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. The most glorious words to me in all of life. Sovereign grace. Salvation is all of grace. It's all grace. And I rejoice in that. So here in John 9, we observe the Lord dealing in grace, acting according to his sovereign will. And it is sovereign grace, is depicted here, that seeks the sinner out. If you're converted, you never sought Jesus. He sought you. Now, there was a time, certainly, to where your, your, your desire was changed and you wanted to know about him, but that was because he drew you in the beginning. He initiated the relationship. That's grace. That's mercy. The Bible says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. God changes the will that is not free, but it's subject to its nature, which is sin. He releases it, and then you now, in Christ, are free will agents to serve Christ because he set you free. Prior to that, that will was in bondage to sin and corruption of the depraved nature of man. Glory, amen. If you're in bondage today, keep listening. If you don't know Christ, keep listening. We pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes and your ears and your heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may you walk out of here converted today, I pray. The gospel. So physical sight was granted to this man, born blind from birth, miraculous healing. And then Jesus, as I said, he uses this as a metaphor to spiritual sight and spiritual blindness at the end of the chapter. 
In chapter 8, it's the light of the world putting to test human responsibility. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, it's the light of the world acting in sovereign mercy subsequent to the human failure of chapter 8. In order to properly identify the Savior of the world because only He can open eyes. He's the only one. In verses 8 through 11, we looked at last week, we witnessed the unrecognizable identity of this man who was visibly transformed. He walks back to his neighborhood, and his own neighbors were like, is that him? No, it can't be. Well, it looks like him. No, it can't possibly be. Well, it is him. No, it's not. And then he said, what? It is me. It is I. I see. And then here in verses 12 to 34, we won't look at all of those today, we observe a rising antagonism of unbelief which is the natural reaction of total depravity or radical corruption, whichever term you prefer, they're synonymous, so pick whatever one you like. Now, even though all mankind is totally depraved, God made men as logical creatures, and they are therefore justly accountable for all that they do, all that they think, and all that they say. And then whatever the outworking of that depravity produces. They're responsible for it, and they will stand in judgment one day. A.W. Pink wrote this. He said, so long as man is not yet consigned to a hopeless perdition, in other words, those who are not yet cast into hell, their responsibility is to be enforced, and they are to be regarded as fit subjects of a gospel address. That's what I did at the funeral. They were fit subjects for a gospel address. Why? Because they're still trapped in their depravity. Where I once was. But he set me free to proclaim the very truth that set me free. His grace through faith, which is a gift, not of works, lest what? Anyone should boast. You can't boast. Because if we bring anything to the table of salvation, then you can go to your family member who's not a believer and you say, well, you don't believe and I do because I chose, therefore I can boast, I can say something that you can't. Who can do that? You can't do that because it's a gift. If you can boast, then you did something. So, given man's fallen condition, the aggressive hostility that the unbeliever exposes against this truth is precisely what is to be expected. And we see that here. Only God can alter such a stillborn soul. It's dead. And without a total transformation, without an absolute change of heart, those that are left to themselves will react to the truth of Christ in his converting power just as this second group does. This second group is the Pharisees. They've witnessed the converting power of Christ, a blind man given sight, and we will see now how they respond. And they respond in hardened unbelief. That's how they respond. They get harder and harder and harder, eventually blaspheming Jesus Christ. So they're going to begin to inquire now, how? How is this formerly blind man able to see? And then they will conclude that Jesus is a sinner. Tell us how this happened. We reject that. Jesus is a sinner. Don't worship him. That's blasphemy. Amen? Blasphemy. So if a person does not understand the total depravity of man, his own, that he's incapable of ever getting right before a holy, righteous God, let alone ever wanting to in and of himself, he'll never understand divine election. Ever is illustrated here in John 9 and clearly communicated throughout Scripture. So Jesus came to expose the darkness of depravity of those who were made conscious of their blindness. When they do, they would receive sight. And then those who claim to have spiritual sight, like these Pharisees in their own estimation, would be made blind. Verses 39 to 41. In other words, this is judicial ba abandonment of the depravity of their evil hearts. They're given over. What God does is what he does. He just lifts his hand of restraint and he turns the sinner over to himself. That's all Romans 1 stuff. 
He turns the sinner over three times in Romans 1, leaves him to himself, and then leaving the sinner to himself manifests itself. That depravity manifests itself in the great evils defined at the end of Romans 1. Praise God he didn't leave you to yourself if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, repent today so that he doesn't turn you over to yourself. Four elements, or I should say four elementary effects of the sinner left to himself in his depravity revealed for us here in verses 12 to 24. Number one, as outlined in your bulletin, human depravity disguises itself in artificial ceremony. Effect number two, human depravity refuses to believe objective truth. Effect number three, human depravity utilizes tactics of intimidation. And then finally, human depravity eventually resorts to open blasphemy of Christ. Number one, human depravity disguises itself in artificial ceremonies beginning in verse 12. And then they said to him, now this is the neighbors, okay? His neighbors, they said to him, where is he? He who? He that made you see. He said, I don't know. And then they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes. So, after giving him all the facts as to what happened and who performed the healing, you know, this group, these neighbors, the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the highest religious body in Judaism. Why they brought him there, don't really know. We know that when a leper was healed or when a a, a leper was clean and no longer had leprosy, they would have to take them to the Pharisees and the Pharisees would have to look and watch and wash them and cleanse them and do all these ceremonies and watch them for a period of time to deem them clean so that they could go back into society. There was no instruction for the blind. But nonetheless, they take him to the Pharisees. And then, verse 15, the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay in my eyes and I wash and I see. So again, just as he did with the neighbors, he simply answers the facts as to what happened and who did it. Spit. Actually, he says, clay. Command. Go wash. I did. I washed. I see. Here I am. Jesus, that's his name. That's all I know. Therefore, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now check this out. Here's a man blind from birth. He's healed. And their only concern is that Jesus did this work on the Sabbath. How ridiculous is that? You know, Jesus performed at least seven of his 33 recorded miracles on the Sabbath. I think it's just an in-your-face. Oh, yeah? you lawmakers, adding to my law. There's God, the lawmaker, Christ, incarnate, God incarnate. There's Jesus Christ. And they add to his law. So in the eyes of these ceremonially clad hypocrites, Jesus has broken the Sabbath in their eyes in three different ways. Number one, first, he spat on the ground and he made mud on the Sabbath. So the, the rabbis and their oral law they deemed it okay to spit on a rock on the Sabbath. If you wanted to spit, you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you don't spit into the dirt, because if you spit into the dirt, it would create mud, and making mud was deemed work. Therefore, you broke the Sabbath. Ridiculous. That's only a tiny aspect of how ridiculous this man-made, these man-made rabbinical regulations were. You know, these are like little irritating nitpickers. You know, they're always missing the big picture. And Jesus addressed that. Back in Matthew, he said this, What are you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've neglected the more important things. And you're nitpicking. He said, you know what you do? You're a bunch of blind guides. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. That's what you are. That's what they were. Secondly, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He, he, in their eyes, performed some type of medical, medical assistance or miracle here. It was forbidden to do such. Medical assistant, assistance was not only allowed, was only allowed, rather, on the assumption that life was in danger. It's the only time you could give medical assistance if someone was, 
facing death. It was written in their traditional laws, quote, that the fracture of a limb may not be attended to. If anyone has sprained his hand or foot, he may not pour cold water on it on the Sabbath. So Jesus' healing was viewed as giving medical attention. Thirdly, Jesus, in their eyes, used spit as medicine, which you weren't able to do. Spit was not to be used on the Sabbath because in their culture, spit was considered therapeutic or medicinal, and you weren't allowed to use medicine on the Sabbath. It was considered a form of work. So these depraved religious leaders hid behind their petty, intricately drawn lines of religious legalism. This was their facade for rejecting Jesus. And the response of the Pharisees revealed that their reasoning was from prejudice. Look what happens. They resort now to deductive reasoning. It's known as a syllogism or a syllogistic argument. It consists of three major or three points. You have a, a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion. The major premise was this. All people of God, this is right here in the verse 16 here, says all people of God keep the Sabbath. Notice they say, this man is not of God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Major premise, all people of God keep the Sabbath. Minor premise, Jesus broke the Sabbath. Conclusion, he's not from God. Notice, there was another group there. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs, plural? And then there was a division among them. Division in the gospel, in the gospels, is a positive thing. That's a very positive thing. Meaning that someone is making a stand for truth. For truth. John 7, verse 12, there was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. Some said he's good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. John 7, 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. John 10, 19, therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of the sayings. What sayings? The sayings of Jesus Christ. And here again in John 9, we see division, which is good in this context. We don't want to see division in the church. That's ugly. Division in the church is ugly. However, many professing Christians who adhere to some erroneous form of teaching, a very man-centered theology, very poor doctrine, wrong theology, when they're confronted with it, and you take what they believe and you test it in light of Scripture and you say, look, you're wrong, they're going to accuse you of being what? Divisive. You're just being divisive. We're supposed to just lay doctrine aside and love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you love his doctrine. You love theology proper. Everyone has theology in their head. Everyone is a theologian. It's just that most people's theology is very, very wrong, very unbiblical. No one has ever been more divisive than Jesus Christ. Nobody. Not even close. People die today because of division over Jesus Christ. Here now we witness those that are more open-minded to this objective truth. In other words, the facts. This first group, they're not open to the facts. They're looking at everything subjectively, emotionally. They've already rejected him in their minds, so they don't want the facts. Here's a group looking at the facts. They stood on the reality that Jesus performed many works. Again, notice the plural, signs, verse 16. Remember Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, he came to Jesus by night, back in John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees, verse 1, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There's no doubt you have supernatural power. You're from God. So the second group here begins their analysis from the miracle itself. Not some preconceived notion or or hatred against Christ. They go to the miracle. So here we witness the syllogistic argument of defense. 
And their argument goes as follows. Major premise, only one from God can open blind eyes. In other words, only one can perform these signs. Minor premise, Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man. He performed the sign. Conclusion, therefore Jesus must be from God. Certainly not a sinner. So disguised now in their hypocritical arguments, their man-made Sabbath laws, the Pharisees reject Christ. And they, never, they never understood the purpose of the Sabbath, ever. Jesus himself said, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for who? For man. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Look, I created that day. I spoke that day into existence. I'll do what I want on that day. I am. This is why they picked up stones in John 8, because he said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Who set the Sabbath day in order. They couldn't understand it. They didn't get it. They love rules. They love regulations. They love nitpicking. And they love to hide behind it. They're a bunch of hypocrites. See, the Sabbath was from God. God blessed that day. He blessed it. He ordered them to keep it holy. And it was never intended to dismiss works of necessity or works of mercy. They didn't get it through their thick religious skulls. Anyone that's caught up in traditions that substitute a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they're just as deceived. You worship Mary, you know, uh, you worship some, some idol, some statue, some plaque, just as deceived. To think because someone recited some words through some ceremony, like confirmation when I grew up in the Lutheran church, just because you recite that to walk away thinking you're saved because you recited the words, it means nothing. You're deceived unless you're born again. It's really no difference. Human depravity now spirals downward as they struggle to establish that the man who received sight has not been born blind. That's, where that's what they resort to now. Well, he wasn't born blind. Effect number two. Human depravity refuses to believe objective truth. Verse 17. And then they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Notice they admit. They admit it here. What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? I mean, they admit that he was healed. And now what do you say? And then from out of this man whose eyes have been opened, we see a progression of conviction, confidence, and belief. When someone's truly born again, that's what they do. They grow in the confidence of the one who saved them. And what he says here. When asked, who do you say that he is? He said, he's a prophet. Now, a prophet held much higher office than did a rabbi. They were known as the rabbis, the teachers, the scribes were the rabbis. But a prophet held a higher office. So that really got under their craw there. A prophet, right? And when God transforms the depravity of humanity into living spirituality, there's this ever-growing confidence that's undeniable to the one who saved them, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. So now these Jews resort to denying that the miracle ever took place. And notice the title here, the Jews. The Jews did not believe. The title, the Jews, is a label given for the hostile unbelievers and resistors of Christ, typically the Pharisees and the scribes. That's who that's referring to, typically through the Gospel of John. So in denying the miracle, they call for more evidence. This time they call for the parents. Verse 19. And then they ask them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see, they ask? Now, just in case the neighbors were mistaken as to the man's identity, certainly the parents wouldn't be mistaken. So let's call in the parents. They're going to know if this is his son. So they call in the parents. But notice again, they ask how. How does he see? You know, unbelieving, depraved humanity willingly rejects truth, the facts. This is the second of three how inquiries of the 
scribes and Pharisees. They ask how in verse 15. They ask how again in verse 19. And then they ask how again in verse 26. You know what that tells us? They believe what they believe. I believe what I believe. Don't bother me with the facts. You can sit under preaching of the word of God. You can grow up being taught something that's, that's wrong or, or shady or, or not the full revelation of what God has revealed through Scripture. And you say, I believe what I believe and I'm not changing. Don't bother me with the facts. That's what they're doing. And then human depravity continues in its sinful descent, leads us to effect number three. Human depravity utilizes tactics of intimidation. When all else fails, let's intimidate the the daylights out of them. Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. By what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him, he'll speak for himself. Now, had he not been blind from birth, these Pharisees could dispute the miracle. But because he was born blind, and there you had witnesses, his own parents, it's hard to deny that fact. Where else are they going to go? So the parents say yes to the details of his blindness, but they claim ignorance as to the power and the name of the one who healed him. I don't know. Ask him. So they certainly weren't of the same bold mindset as their son. They feared the leaders. So they proceed now to interrogate the parents. And this is nothing less than religious manipulation. And that's what happens in religion. We're going to tell you what to believe. Okay, here's our little list of stuff. Here's the traditions. You've got to take this class. You have to do this and you have to go through this. And when you recite this and I sprinkle you with this and I do this to you and all this other stuff, then you're going to be good. And then when you die, we'll pray you into a better place and all this stuff. And you need to believe that. And don't test me on it. Intimidation. Manipulation. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that that he was the Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. So as the Pharisees attempt to hang this on somebody, the parents, they want off the hook. Get us out of here. Talk to him. They couldn't refute the miracle, but they wanted desperately to discredit the miracle worker. So they obviously discerned some type of danger here with these Pharisees. And they weren't willing to get caught up with it along with their son. Parents were more concerned about their social status, their religious affiliation, than they were about their own son, let alone the healing or the one who healed him and the only one that could save them, Jesus. That's what tradition does. That's what religious intimidation does. It keeps you going back to what you're used to instead of embracing the truth. These words here, put out of the synagogue, it's one word, which means to be religiously cut off and excommunicated. Literally, it means to be unsynagogued. You know, the Talmud, which is the oral law of the Jews, lists three kinds of excommunication. The first was seven to 30 days for disciplinary reasons. You'd receive a stern rebuke and then the loss of privileges for that number of days, whatever that number of days was, upward of a month. The second was 30 to 60 days, or even longer in some cases, resulting of a loss of social, economic, and religious relations. You'd be just cast out for upward of two months or so. And the third was the worst. The third was to be banned permanently, forever excommunicated. Forever. This would be equivalent to the life of an outcast leper. Cast out. That's why they answered as they did. Fear. Fear. This would later become the fear of certain religious rulers who began to believe in the facts of Jesus. When we get to John 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers many believed in him, but 
But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why? Because they love the praises of men more than the praises of God. When you love the praises of God, when you love the truth of God, you won't fear man. You won't fear man. Because by his divine work, he plants in you life, and then he brings you to a a place of discipleship to grow in the greater knowledge of him, and you'll stand on that truth, and you will be ostracized for it sooner or later. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You'll grow thick skin, it's cool. You stand for the truth. Therefore, verse 23, therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So due to their fear, certainly they knew his story. They knew that Jesus did this. They were there. They heard their son. Jesus did it. I was blind, now I see. They knew. But they say, he's an adult, ask him. You know, you may have to stand alone, even in your own family. You profess the truth of the gospel, the only true way. Your whole family may be against you. That's why Jesus said this, unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, and sister, and your very life, you cannot be my disciple. Any affection that precedes me, you cannot be my disciple. You must even hate your own life. You must pick up your cross daily and follow me. You have to stand alone sometimes. So finally now, as I conclude, last point, from man-made ceremonies, effect number one of human depravity, to refusing the facts, effect number two, to using tactics of intimidation, we move now to effect number four, human depravity eventually resorts to open blasphemy of Christ. Verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind and they said to him, give glory to God. So they go back to their first argument and to them, there was only one solution. This man, Jesus, is a sinner. Don't you dare give him glory. You give your glory to God, not to this man. Even though they knew he was healed by this man. Now, this may sound all nice. This may sound pious. Or today, it may sound relevant or relative. Well, they're just, they're just serving another God. They mean well. Wrong. They're blasphemers. They're lost in their depravity. Anyone who's not in Christ are lost in their depravity. There's, there's no third road. There's two roads. One's straight and narrow, leads to eternal life. The other one is broad and it's wide. And how many people are on that way? Many people are on that way, Jesus said. Many people think they're on the road to heaven and they're lost, Jesus said. See, both roads lead apparently to heaven, but there's only one that gets you there, and it's Christ. It's straight and it's narrow, and it's through the true gospel. They're lost, they're depraved, they're blasphemers. Here's the blasphemy. We know that this man is a sinner. You refer to Jesus Christ as a sinner, you're a blasphemer. To not proclaim that Jesus Christ was sinless, it's blasphemy. He's God incarnate. He couldn't sin if he wanted. He couldn't sin. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Why? Because he had a different nature. He was God in human flesh. He answered and said, verse 25, well, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, let me tell you, though I was blind, now I see. Now I see. So this man bears witness as to what God has done for him. Notice, he's not drawn into their erroneous theological arguments here. He states the facts as to Christ's work in him. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. If you're in Christ, you were blind. You've been granted sight. And it's only by grace that you see. It's only by grace that I see. That's why we meet here together. We're rejoicing in the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? That is why the church gathers. Grace gift. This man was purified. He was given sight. He was restored by the touch and the command of Jesus. He touched him and he commanded him. The man went and he came back seeing. In our human condition, if it's left to itself, everything is vile. Everything is polluted until and only if it is purified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ accredited to the sinner. That's why you're righteous if you're in Christ. You're perfectly positionally righteous in Christ because his righteousness is accredited to you. He took all of your sin on the cross. It's a great exchange. 
And then that makes the person, the sinner saved by grace, it makes him and his prayers as well as his works for the glory of God righteous in the sight of God. So it's all by God. Spurgeon wrote this, quote, In the best prayer that was ever offered by the holiest man that ever lived, there was enough of sin to render it a totally polluted thing if the Lord had looked upon it by itself, end quote. If God looks upon me by, by myself, I'm a wretched, rotten sinner. Just like I was before I was saved. But all he sees on me now is the righteousness of his son, clothed, robed in righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. It's a grace gift. He chose you. You didn't choose him. You came to him because he called you. You had ears to hear, which he gave you. You came and he changed you by grace. People don't believe this truth because they can't. They're trapped in their condition of moral, sinful depravity. So the sight that is granted to the spiritually blind comes only by way of Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ, crucified on behalf of the totally depraved sinner. As I conclude, through the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's His work. And then He replaces the rotten rags of our sin with the perfect robe of His own righteousness, Isaiah 61.10. What a gift, amen? He offers forgiveness, honor, authority, respect, and a full right to pray in his name. He hears your prayers as a believer. And we can come boldly to the what? The throne of grace and receive mercy in the time of need. And then the outcome of such a life is a life of repentance and true faith to believe. The sinner's then made righteous. He's given the means to follow and obey. Quick to confess and repent. And when we confess and we repent our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a relationship. That's a union because he came to you and he washed you. If you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I trust that the Lord has you here this morning to hear this eternal truth. This is an unchanging truth. And I trust that God is working in your heart. I hope and pray that he's drawing you to himself in the process of converting you if he has not already. I pray that he'll reveal to you your depravity so that you'll cry out for mercy for his grace. And then he'll grant you that grace, I pray, to see and believe. If you're in Christ, I'll leave you with this. Please listen very carefully. If you're in Christ, your totally depraved human nature was totally and completely atoned for and altered. He paid for it. He took the wrath on your behalf and he changed your nature. He transformed you. There's not a single person in this room that deserves to be saved. Nobody. Yet he chose you before the foundation of the what? Of the earth. He chose you before you were ever thought about, before you were ever a twinkle in the eye of mama or papa. He chose you unconditionally in the midst of your total incapability of doing anything to earn it. If you're in Christ, Christ atoned for those sins. He, he, he suffered the wrath of the Father on that cross so that you wouldn't have to. He called you, and that call was what? Irresistible. You had to come because I know my sheep, and my sheep what? Hear my voice. And what do they do? They follow me. And you followed him because he called you, and he enabled you to respond. He suffered the wrath in your place, and he's going to keep you forever, because he said, no one will snatch you out of my hand. He'll preserve you to the end until you see him face to face in glory because of what he did on the cross. That is salvation. That is grace. That is deliverance. That is redemption from a depraved nature. He bought you back from the very thing that you were enslaved to And it's that which you were born with, a human nature that is totally depraved. And now you have a new nature in Christ to walk in, to rejoice in, and to glorify God in. Amen? That's salvation. May you rejoice in that. As he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, and he wraps you in his robes of righteousness. I'm going to ask that you stand and pray with me.
When you understand that all of salvation is grace, it makes you all the, the much there, much more, therefore, thankful. And we're commanded to be thankful always for all things. Amen? So let's thank him together. Father, I thank you for these dear people and your ever-abundant grace that has been bestowed upon each one of us. Thank you for the divine truth of Scripture. Thank you for delivering us from our depraved condition. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here today who perhaps has heard the gospel for the first time. I pray that it was clear. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll remove any uncertainty that I communicated today and that you'll drive this truth into their heart, that you'll convert them and give them eyes to see. And for all the Christians in here, I pray that they'll be very thankful for the sight that they have to see and to know and to walk in the truth revealed to us through Scripture by the power of the Spirit because of the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, according to you, Father, your divine purpose in eternity past, before the foundation of the earth. We thank you for these truths. You're in control, not us. May we subject ourselves to you, your providence, the leading of your Spirit, under the sovereign authority of your hand and your will, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.